Doghouse Conversations, bringing you thought-provoking discussions from the documentary world. Hello, this is Carol Nara. Welcome to Doghouse Conversations. I'm delighted to welcome Smriti Mundra to kick off our second series of the podcast. Smriti has had a big year with her documentary short, St. Louis Superman, nominated for an Oscar. 2020 also saw the launch of her Netflix series, Indian Matchmaking, which began a global conversation about the place of arranged marriages in modern society. I talk with her about how her own experience led to her feature doc debut, A Suitable Girl, which covers much of the same themes of Indian matchmaking in a very different style. We also discuss a film which continues to inspire Smriti, Paul Thomas Anderson's Janoon. Smriti, thanks so much for joining us. It's so happy to be here. It's really, I'm I'm glad to have a chance to talk to you in more depth because we chatted briefly mm, 10 months ago, I think, for... um, interviewing you for your short film, St. Louis Superman, uh, which you were Oscar nominated with and uh, which was great. So you were headed to the Oscars when last we spoke. How was that? How was How was it going there? (laughs) Um, I mean, and that was an absolutely surreal, magical fairy tale like experience um, that feels even more surreal and magical considering everything that's happened since then with the global pandemic. Um, I know that's an oxymoron global pandemic, but um, considering everything that's happened since then, you know, just thinking back that that was like the last big thing, you know, that, that, that I experienced and that happened in my life prior to, you know, pandemic lockdown makes it, makes it feel even more magical. Um, But it was, I mean, it's like not something I would have ever, 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 ever imagined for myself. And it was every bit as wonderful, you know, as, um, as, as I would have thought. And it was great that you were able to have a reunion with your co-director, Sammy Khan, and your uh, contributor, who was a focus of the film, Bruce Franks. Um, and he is a activist slash politician and a battle rapper. And this was just before uh, George Floyd's killing, if I'm correct, a couple months before that. And so what is it like to have this film out there? So speaking directly to Black Lives Matter at a time um, when when everything sort of kicked off in late May and June, what was that like for you and for Bruce? Yeah, it was it was interesting because in some way, you know, what happened this past summer, you know, with the deaths of George George Floyd, the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and, and so many other, um, you know, uh, Black men and women and children, you know, at the hands of police and vigilantes in, in, in America. It's, it, 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 though it felt new or, or at least, you know, um, much more prevalent to a lot of people, you know, in the country, for, for most people, for, 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 for us, you know, and especially for somebody like Bruce, you know, who's lived with this day in and day out, as you can see in the film, it wasn't new. You know, it was just the fact that sort of, I guess you could say mainstream America and the world had really woken up to, to what um, a lot of us have known for a very long time. And St. Louis Superman was made um, to specifically address um, the trauma, uh, you know, of um, police violence and systemic racism and the violence that's brought upon by systemic racism in America. Um, And it just so happened that it was released at a time when, you know, it felt like the whole world had woken up to these issues. 
So in that sense, I'm really glad that it helped, you know, at a time when I think a lot of people in, in this country, particularly in the United States, you know, really needed, you know, to have a deeper understanding about these issues. I'm glad that the film came out when it did and could help people on that journey, you know, to understanding what, you know, what Black people go through in this country day in and day out. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the film was obviously not made to speak to that moment because it was speaking to many, many moments, you know, for generations prior to that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, um, it, it strikes me that what you talked about in terms of, you know, coming to a wider attention, what you've known for so long in the Black community, and, and you know, a lot of us have known, but of course, bringing it to the fore in terms of uh, people paying attention to it and trying to do something about it. it. There are interesting parallels there actually with some of the themes that you bring out with the, um, with Indian matchmaking and a suitable girl, which, which we'll, we're, we're going to get to in a minute. Um, but before that, I actually want to detour slightly because part of this um, second series of the podcast is I've been asking filmmakers to kind of nominate a film that has had an impact on them or that they really admired as well uh, that they didn't make and one that they did make. So um, I want to start with the one that you have um, that you have picked, which is Paul Thomas Anderson's Junin. Um, this is, uh, should I just read a paragraph I've pulled up that describes what it is and then we'll talk about why this has resonated for you. Mm -hmm. um, I pulled this off of Variety. Um, uh, this is a Variety description of it. This is a, a, a film that came out in 2015. That's just under an hour in length. Making a solid first foray into nonfiction terrain with Junoon, Paul Thomas Anderson tags along with his frequent soundtrack collaborator and Radiohead guitarist Johnny Greenwood to Rajasthan in Northwest India, where the British rocker aims to make an album with a host of international artists. It's an immersive portrait of harmonious dialogue between not only East and West, but also man and nature, the past and the present. So how did this top your list of, of films to, uh, to have a chat about? So I know it's an unusual choice because it's, you know, in many regards, it's like a, it's a very slight film, you know, it's not sort of, you know, in the canon, you know, of, of documentary films that, that we, you know, all consider um, to be, the, you know, the most important documentary films, um, you know, of our, uh, you know, generation or past generations. Um, but I figured, you know, like considering the audience, I figure everyone, you know, understands most people listening to this understand the importance of Barbara Koppel and, you know, Steve James and Frederick Weissman and a lot of, you know, a lot of those filmmakers. And, you know, the reason I really decided to choose this film is because this film, it, it, it's the one I watch before I start any project. Interesting. And the reason for that is because it, it, there's something about it that is so free. You know, it, it's free from, you know, this sort of overthinking about story and, and cinematography and, and character and all of that. It just, it just is, you know, um, Paul Thomas Anderson, what he was able to do was just exist, you know, with a highly creative group of people, you know, over a, a brief period of time, I think it was like six weeks or eight weeks that he was with them and just capture really the essence of being there, the essence of being in the room with these you know, in, incredibly talented, creative, vibrant artists as they were making a new work of art together. And, you know, there is something about that energy that I, that I, that I want to capture, you know, in all of my films, you know, just, just the, the immediacy, the vibrancy, the, the sort of 
um, emotion of it that I think we sort of start to stray away from, you know, as we start thinking of characters and themes and story and, you know, all of those things when we make films. And I, it's, it's like a, it's almost like a counterweight to me, you know, I watch Janoon and I remind myself that, you know, um, that storytelling can also just be just the sort of celebration of creativity and a celebration of, of a moment, you know, in time, um, as a, as opposed to a carefully mapped, you know, um, story arc or journey or, you know, group of thematics and things like that. Um, so it's, it's the film that I watch, you know, um, you know, almost, I, I watch it probably four or five times a year when I'm <laughs> feeling freedom stuck in a rut, you know, it's so short. It's like, you know, less, I think it's 50 minutes yeah. long. Yeah. Um, but what, what it, were the circumstances that you first saw it in? Did you see it in a cinema initially? So I saw, I mean, I think I saw an advertisement or something for it. I didn't see it in the cinema. I saw it. Um, I saw it on, I think it was released on movie or something like that. One of those yeah. you know, more arty, smaller platforms. And I, I said, I was, Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, one of the, yes, the world's yeah. greatest directors, documentary and in India. I was like, of course, I'm going to watch this. Um, <laughs> and then I saw it, actually had a chance to see it uh, in a theater in Los Angeles, um, one of the sort of arty theaters, downtown LA, um, where there was an actual um, live music component to it, you know, oh, yeah. it, which was really amazing. Um, but I also then, you know, after reading about how it was made, this is another reason why I watch the film so often is um, I, I read that um, Paul Thomas Anderson had all of this equipment, you know, that he had um, sort of shipped over with a carnet and everything to India when he was going there to make the film, you know, cameras and drones and jibs and, you know, all of this kinds of stuff and all of it got stuck in customs. So he didn't have any of the equipment. He had a black magic camera and a piece of string that he used to stabilize it. And I think his producer had a drone and he maybe had like a little couple of little toys. So he had none of the equipment that he thought he was going to have to make this film. And he had to figure it out anyway. And you can see that, you know, when you watch it, you can see it's like the camera's a little bit jittery. And, you know, it's just, um, you know, again, it just, it just, it's a reminder that, that you never need as much as you think you need in order to make yeah. a great film. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, it's definitely the film that I wish I had made. Um, and the film that I watch so frequently because it just reminds me to love the creative process, you know, and, and let that be my North star as opposed to anything else. Oh, well, well that's great. And I'm, I'm so glad to hear the, hear why you, why you chose it. And it, it's interesting because of course it's so different from any of his other films, which are, which are all, uh, fiction films. And, but when you think back and it's been, you know, 20 years since I saw it, but, but Boogie Nights and that opening scene of Boogie Nights, uh, which takes in the whole yeah. scenario, right? And the one shot wandering around is actually not dissimilar to the yeah. opening take of this and that you're just, you're soaking in everything and then you're moving on and you're soaking yeah. in and moving on. Yeah. Um, but of course, one will have taken a lot of elaborate construction and the other was, was captured uh, yeah. raw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it's just, I think for, for I think this is true of all artists, but you know, since I primarily work in documentary, it's, I find it especially true for me is that some often I just, I feel like I need to remember, you know, to fall in love with the creative process, you know, um, and and learn to really see the small moments, you know, yeah. um, and what they can say about a bigger picture, the, 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 the 
portrait they can paint of a world. And that film just really reminded me of that in, in a weird way, both, both by the way it was made by Paul Thomas Anderson and also um, by the artists that are in it, you know, cause you just see, you know, artists jamming together, different countries, different styles, different, you know, um, regions and, you know, trial and error and, you know, quiet moments when all the electricity goes out and just <laughs> all of that, yeah. you know, was really yeah. energizing. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, um, the, the, the smaller moments and the quiet moments, because I think it's a nice segue into the other film that you've chosen, which is one that you directed. It's had a big impact on you, um, which is a, a suitable girl. And this is, um, I was delighted that you picked this and I was hoping that you would, uh, because I still remember seeing this at Sheffield Dockfest and, and just really, really getting um, immersed in the stories of these three um, girls and they are sort of moving into uh, arranged marriages with various levels of, of sort of agreement. Um, and it's full. And what I loved about it is it's full of observational moments that you can really feel what's going on and places you there in it, but you're not heavily signposting it. So you have the, um, the, contributor who's who's being in the middle of her marriage and her, 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 her couple days wedding ceremony is sitting there and then ends up in tears and you're just you're sitting there's a camera back watching and it's very very powerful and I remember that years later after seeing it um can you tell us and this is a Netflix film so people will be able to watch it um quite easily can you tell me how the film came about and your and uh because I think it's really quite interesting uh backstory to it yeah, certainly. Well, um, you know, I think a lot of women and especially a lot of South Asian women understand um, that, you know, when you start getting towards your mid 20s, there's just an immense amount of pressure to get married from family, from community, um, well-meaning people, you know, it's just what, it's just the path that's been carved out for us, you know, and um, a lot of us, you know, especially from my generation, um, really struggle with that, you know, because we've been raised to believe that so much of our self-worth is tied to whether or not we get married. Um, you know, we've been raised under, you know, very patriarchal, um, uh, in a very patriarchal culture. And, you know, though many of us have kind of run in the other direction, you know, with our careers and with, you know, our sort of chosen family, our friend circle, things like that, we're still, you know, have this, this sort of pull, you know, towards that, this, this sort of, and all of these internalized messages about what we should be doing and, you know, how, how, how our lives should be lived. And that inevitably starts with, you know, finding a husband. And this is, I think, true of men also. So I would say for them, for men too, it's like, you know, with getting married and settling down. Um, I struggled with this a lot in my twenties. You know, I had, when I was 27, I, ended, um, you know, a three-year relationship, which I thought was going to lead to marriage, um, and felt completely rudderless. I felt adrift. And I, at that time, I just sort of handed over the reins to my love life, um, to my mother, <laughs> you know, typical. Um, but my mom immediately went sprung into action. You know, um, she, there were spreadsheets, there were matrimonial ads in newspapers, there were matrimonial website profiles, um, and there were matchmakers, um, including Seema Tafaria, um, who I met when I was 27 years old. Um, I had known of her before that because she was a very known person in my community. Um, where does your mom where does your mom live? Sorry. She lives in California. Okay. 
Yeah, she was in California. <laughs> um, but you know, we 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 sort of grew up in both places, and we spent a lot of time both in India and in the U.S. growing okay. up. And actually, when all of this was happening, she was living in London with. Um, so, you know, it was it was and and <laughs> the funny thing is, so I I was living at that time when I was twenty seven. My mom was in London. My, um, I was living in New York. Our sort of home base is Los Angeles, California. And then our other home base was Mumbai, India. So wherever I was, you know, in that period, wherever I was in the world, you know, if I was going to visit my parents in London for a week, there would be, she would change the, you know, geotagging of my matrimonial profile. And there would be like three men I would need to meet for coffee while I was there. <laughs> I remember 2008, I went for President Obama's inauguration to Washington DC and she had somehow figured out like she'd set, set up a date for me you know a coffee date <laughs> like awkward coffee dates for me even then um so it was a lot of that and you know I um that was your mom or Seema you're talking about had set it was both so my mom was like the the general you know um kind of coordinating <laughs> all of these things and and Seema was one of the tools you know um that you know through which she she procured these men for me um, I know that sounds weird, but that was what it was. Um, but you know, I just two things happened. One, I um, I recognized that I what what I really needed to address was not the lack of a spouse, but was this idea of how much I had tied my self worth to finding a spouse. Um, so I went into therapy, and I you know t- thought about that and talked about that a lot. Um, I also at that time you know was in film school and. Uh, Sarita Karana, my directing partner and a suitable girl was one of my close friends in film school, close collaborators in film school. And also as a South Asian woman, she was going through very similar things. So we would, something we would commiserate about a lot. And um, I, you know, felt like there has to be some way to sort of examine this and navigate this, you know, that's external to me because therapy took a lot out of me, you know, it was great, but it took a lot out of me. Um, and then, you know, I was spending time with Seema, you know, as my matchmaker, and she kind of gave, gave me entry to this really fascinating world, you know, of all of these other women, you know, who many of whom had opted into this, you know, um, system and didn't question it quite as much as I did, although maybe deep down they did. Um, and what happened was the year that I was graduating from film school, I had a, you know, meeting with Seema, I was meeting with Seema and she told me that her daughter was coming back from London School of Economics from getting her master's degree. And she was 24 years old and she was like completely stressed out about finding a spouse for her daughter. And that's when like the light bulb went off. I was like, oh, I need to make a documentary. You know, also at that time, you know, I was, I just graduated. I wanted to make a film. I was not finding any luck getting financing for a fiction film, you know, to make. So I thought, I'm going to make a documentary about this. Um, and, you know, Seema and her daughter were ready to give access and all of that. Um, and I talked to Sarita and I said, you know, do you want to explore this, you know, as like a form of therapy for both of us um, and make this film? And she was completely on board. And so we started making A Suitable Girl. And then, you know, along the way, we met Amrita, like very soon within the first six months of shooting, we met Amrita and we met Deepthi, the other two um, participants mm-hmm. in the film. And it was you know, that started the seven year journey of making that film. Which uh, of course you had no idea would be a seven year journey, I assume. Nope. Like, <laughs> so how did, how did you go about shooting and shooting in a different country than you and, 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 and squaring it as being co-directors? How did that all pan out? Yeah. So, I mean, it was very organic, you know, um, I, I had, 
you know, pretty much grown up half my life in India. So I was very comfortable in India. I had a lot of family there, um, fluent in Hindi and, you know, other Indian languages and things like that. And very kind of under like familiar with the culture. Like I was, I've never been a foreigner, you know, or a tourist in India. I've always okay. you know, felt very at home there. So in that regard, it was, it was easy to sort of film there in a sense, you know, it's n- nothing doing anything is not easy in India, but um, it was easier than I think than just coming and having not knowing anything. Um, and then, you know, our, my, my sort of collaboration with Sarita was also very organic because I think we were coming from a similar place of curiosity, you know, about this topic, you know, and a similar kind of very personal place of wanting to explore it. And, you know, we, we have very different styles as directors and very different personalities that I think actually fit very well together, you know, where, you know, we each sort of had people that we, you know, we could sort of gain the trust of, you know, and, um, you know, kind of get on the inside with, and then the other person can be sort of like that foil, you know, um, um, to sort of ask the questions from a more objective point of view or, or, or assess things from a more objective point of view. So um, it was a really good balance. And we definitely were aware of, you know, our different personalities and the way we balance each other and always tried to, you know, make the, you know, one plus one equals three, you know, while we were shooting and while we were in post-production with our um, producer and editor, Jen Teixeira. Um, so it was really an, a, a great um, scenario, you know, for collaborating. Also just I didn't know this, you know, not, I think neither of us knew this when we embarked on, on making a suitable girl, you know, also Sarita had made a documentary before I hadn't. So um, there was a bit of comfort knowing that she had done it, you know, had done it before I did, had no idea what I was getting into. So, um, you know, we didn't know it was going to be four years of shooting and three years of editing, but in a way it was great that we didn't know. Cause first of all, I would have never done it if I'd known <laughs> yeah. it was going to take up that much of my life. Um, because at that time I very much wanted to make um, fiction scripted films. Um, but I completely fell in love with the process. And I feel like I found myself creatively, you know, this thing that I had been chasing, you know, for 15 years of my career, you know, um, and my life, this confidence that like, this growing sense of confidence that I have a voice, I have a story to tell. And actually I know how to do this. You know, even as I'm fumbling through it, I know how to do this. Um, that that really kind of came to be, you know, over the course of making a suitable girl. And I can say that in hindsight, because, you know, I'm so proud of the way the film turned out. Um, and of course, you know, it's done very well, but at the time it, it felt like really, it just felt like kind of trying to find my way through, you know, out of a paper bag. Like it was, it was, we, we filmed, you know, a lot of the things that people appreciate the film for, like those smaller moments, those very intimate moments, you know, I have to be honest, were the result of having no sense of discipline about filming. Like we would yeah, just- Yeah, did you, you have some insane amount day. of shooting hours to do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, 700 hours of footage later, you know, like you find those personal <laughs> moments and we just had no, you know, it was just like, well, we film everything. That's just what you do in a documentary. You yeah. Know, have no sense of discipline. And in a way, I think that actually served us really well. You know, we embedded, we truly embedded. And mm. it's something that I try to retain actually some sense of even now, like as I've progressed in my career and I'm, you know, film making films especially when you have like you know uh you know these big streaming partners and things like that is the efficiency becomes a big part of it but I try to maintain yeah. that sense of efficiency yeah absolutely um, well I'm going to ask you about that uh, but before uh before I do I want to not forget to ask you uh just uh, just I'm really I've been rewatched the film and I found it just as rewarding to watch again as I did the first time and I just really enjoyed uh enjoyed it and 
Dipti's storyline. How how fantastic is that? I'm sorry, but but it, just the fact because I had forgotten it had been so long since I'd seen the film that I had actually forgotten. And you just think that she's never gonna. <laughs> I'm just being now. I'm just being a romantic, but you think she's never gonna yeah. really find you know right. There's some really sh- kind of shocking scenes in there where it's just for <laughs> the and and then um, uh, the fact that she finds this man who seems to be a great guy. So yeah. can you update me on what was that like shooting that storyline? And is that partially why it took you four years it was, to get there? And what was all, tell me about that. Oh man, it was, you know, I think every documentary filmmaker goes through this where you just like, you know, if you're very lucky, you get a few moments, you know, when you're shooting where just the documentary gods are smiling on, on you. And, you know, um, there were those moments in A Suitable Girl. And one of them was like actually, you know, we we were, we were again like over film overshooting constantly. So we're filming with DP like a lot, and then she met Karthik, and she told us like I've met this guy. You know, we've been talking, and I think he's enjoying. You could just tell like there was this like sparkle <laughs> in her eye. You know, talking about him. They never met before. Um, they'd only been talking on the phone and over you know on um dating app, whatever dating site, yeah, uh, matrimonial site. And Shadi, she said that, <laughs> yeah. yeah. When she said that, I was like, this sounds familiar. So I like watched back through the footage and I realized we had the moment where she actually like discovered his profile, you know, online. Right. And that, it was like months later where they actually, you know, got to talking, you know. So I was like, oh. yes, we captured that moment. Um, it was like not by design at all. It was definitely, it was just by sheer virtue of like overshooting that we actually had that moment and then you know we were so lucky because at that point you know we had we were three and a half years and we're three years into filming so we we really had this trust with her so we were able to be there and film that first meeting you know which yes. was so magical it was also completely stressful because it happened so suddenly and we couldn't physically be there neither Sarita or I could physically we were in in the U.S. like on a rare break you know at that time and we couldn't physically get back to India in time because she gave us like five days notice you know that I'm he his family's coming and you know like if everything goes well we're going to get engaged you know of course after three years of waiting 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 you know both um, Deepthi and Ritu got engaged at almost exactly the same time their engagements were in the same week and we had no notice for either of them. So we were, you know, now like in the pandemic, remote directing feels so normal. But like at the time, you know, I remember I was on Skype, you know, on a laptop, like in the corner of the room, oh. you know, like a local shooter in India there. And I was like, what's happening? Tell me what's happening. Tell me what's happening. And I was like constantly trying to communicate the moments that we needed and things like that. Um, in both oh cases. My oh my gosh. Wow, so really? Stressful. <laughs> um, oh, you never so would have guessed that was uh well, you got it, and it was it's it was such an amazing scene to, to see. Yeah. And I strongly recommend people go and seek this film out uh, on Netflix. Um but it brings me to the last thing I want to talk to you about, which is a, a series that is followed up from A Suitable Girl, which is your Netflix series, Indian Matchmaking. So I was so happy kind of to see this and realize that you're behind both of them, because as a professor of documentary, when I teach my students, it's a great case study to look yeah. at the approaches to storytelling. And you alluded to this before, but of course, this is, even though so many of the themes are similar in both films and even you have Sima as the same um, character in both of them. 
it's a very, very different approach. So can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, absolutely. So Indian Matchmaking is a show that I came up with and tried to pitch even before we started Suitable Girl. I first pitched it in 2008 or 2009, shortly after I started spending time with Seema. Um, And I pitched it to a lot of you know, at the time, you know, there wasn't such a thing as like premium unscripted, you know, the kind of shows that we see on Netflix that are sort of reality, but still have a little bit more of a, a premium feel to them. It was just reality TV. So um, I pitched it to a few companies and was told it's too niche, you know, it's too niche. Um, so I just put it away. I'd even cut like a little reel, you know, a little interview with Seema that I did and cut a little thing together. And I just like put it away, completely forgot about it. And then um, after Suitable Girl came out, um, Bela Bajaria, who is now the head of global television at Netflix, um, basically runs the world at Netflix. At the time, she had just joined Netflix as the head of unscripted programming. And also at that time, you know, partially because of Bela, um, Netflix was really looking to expand their global content offering. So I met with Bela. She'd seen a suitable girl. I had known her actually, you know, years before that, you know, just from the community and from the industry. So she called me in for a meeting and said, you know, I want to do more in India. What ideas do you have for unscripted, you know, documentary, you know, type of content in India? And I said, well, I know this matchmaker. (laughs) And she has this um, insane world of clients, you know, and her, she's like, her personality is like made for TV and, you know, we weren't really able to get into her business, you know, and her clients very much in a suitable girl, but there is this world there. And I think it's like super fun and crazy and horrific and appealing, you know, and all of that. And so I, you know, showed her like a few clips of, of Seema that I had recorded, you know, years ago, embarrassing like SD video, you know, type of clips. And, you know, I said, I, I think we should make, I was like, I made a suitable girl to speak to that audience. You know, like we made a suitable girl to speak to the, I guess you could call it the already converted, like people who are already thinking about, you know, patriarchy and, and, you know, the oppression of women and, you know, all of these complex issues around marriage. Um, But I was like, if we're going to get to a wider audience, it has to feel different. You know, if we're going to get to people like my mother and get them to start thinking about these things, it has to feel different. It has to feel more like, you know, I guess real housewives than it does, you know, serious gritty documentary. Um, So I said, I would love to do an unscripted show, you know, that is about Seema and her clients, you know, in this sort of wacky world, you know, this that she's constantly navigating. And it was, you know, the single easiest pitch I've ever done. You know, I've never had a, I've never sold something that fast before or since um, because she essentially greenlit it in that meeting, you know, before I left the room. Um, And then it took two years of development to actually make it because it was a really complicated show to figure out. And, we know, we didn't want it to honestly, didn't actually want it to feel like Real Housewives or anything like that because we wanted to, um, we wanted it to have some gravitas, but also have a balance of, of sort of fun, you know, and energy mm-hmm. that people who are not accustomed to documentary would find it entertaining and interesting to watch. And so that's how we sort of came at the format and the style and tone um, in collaboration. And how did you with- think about, how did you get into that style? Like, like where were, what were some of your inspirations for the aesthetic of it? So it was, um definitely like queer eye and you know some of these like premium unscripted you know the sort of new versioning 
area of premium unscripted that was coming up, you know, that I think Netflix was really a, a leader in. Um, and then IPC, the production company that I worked with, um, that was sort of, that was, that they had really kind of um, perfected that style, you know, of making things that are appealing to a broad audience, but, but tackling, you know, tougher issues. Um, we had an incredible showrunner, Jean Begley. She'd done Jailbirds and, you know, some other um, series on Netflix. Um, and she really, um, she, like, intuitively understood that style, you know? So we were, like, very much balances for each other, where I was like, what is my agenda that I want to get in here? And, and you know, and then we would, like, figure out, like, well, how can we make it fun, you know? So it was, like, the casting was really important. The the aesthetic, you know, shooting on, you know, the, um, you know, red cameras and that very bright, you know, graphic aesthetic Mm-hmm. Um, you know, was really important. And, you know, they, um, IPC and Jean really like made sure that we had the resources necessary um, to make it look like a big, you know, frothy kind of series. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Okay, I'm quoting something. So can you go over that? Could be quiet. Okay, I have. Okay. Oh my. Okay. Okay. So go over there and be very quiet. Okay. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, so cute. Surprised it took this long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, um, that was a good run. Yeah. So so it was really you know a combination of you know my familiarity with the world you know having been through it personally and having seen some of the lighter side side of it. Um, Jean Begley, our amazing showrunner, you know, who has the ability to sort of. Um, uh, sort of see the bigger picture, you know, and pull together the resources needed for that aesthetic. IPC, you know, production company that, you know, they really kind of honed that ability to, um, to, to Trojan Horse. Like, you know, they, they made the um, Scientology series um, with Bea Remini and, you know, things like that. So to explore, you know, bigger issues through, you know, broadly appealing um, shows. And then frankly, Netflix, you know, our executives at Netflix, you know, they know their audience, mm-hmm. you know, they know, they know what, um, they know what's going to work for their audience. And they, they, they both were extremely helpful in sort of guiding us, but also really trusted us, you know, and stood out, you know, kind of, they knew when to, you know, let us sort of go with our vision and when to sort of harness our vision, you know, into something that was going to appeal to their audience. And so I think the combination of all those things is what made Indian matchmaking, you know, a successful well, and you talk about um, casting and it was, it is successful. And I, I again, really enjoyed watching, talking about casting, um, it, but am I right in that you did cast it within the pool of SEMA's existing network? Yeah, for the most part, um, you know, we went through all 500 something of SEMA's clients, talked to everybody. It was very difficult to cast entirely from that pool because again, it was a very different type a show, you know, I don't think anybody really, I, I was, you know, would try to explain to people where it's not like a suitable girl where we're going to get into like the sort of gritty nitty gritty of your life and have a camera in your face for four years. Frankly, I think people, because they knew Seema, they knew we were <laughs> they're like, God, they were never going to get rid of these people. Um, you know, and, and it's not like the bachelor, you know, or bachelorette, which, you know, are popular, like reality TV is very popular in India right. and documentaries are considered like BBC or, you know, that kind of thing, yeah. more educational. So it's hard to explain that this is something in between that, you know, sort of a hybrid of that. So, you know, and also it's a very personal sort of journey and a personal topic for people that a lot of people are not inclined to share on camera. 
Um, so we went through her list of clients. We found, you know, um, about half of our cast through her list of clients and then another few through friends of those people. Um, and then we did our own sort of outreach. I reached out to everybody in my community, you know, everybody like um, every, every South Asian person that I knew to try to find, you know, some other people who would, who would make sense and who would organically be clients of SEMA and then let them go through the organic process of onboarding, you know, as clients of SEMA. So it was a combination of those things. Right. Well, you spend years making a documentary like A Suitable Girl and you just, you wanna bring it to a broad audience and you want people to be talking about it. But, you know, most documentarians still find that their audience is not as great as they would want it to be, that they would want to bring in front of more people. What was it like for you kind of to jump to the other end of this spectrum and have this show released globally and have this global conversation start about it and people really watching it? I know it was top rated on Netflix to the extent they give out hints about that sort of thing. So it seems extraordinary to me. So tell me what that was like and to have so many people opining and sometimes negatively about the themes in it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it really made me really, it really crystallized for me the power of both um, formats. I think independent documentary um, will stand the test of time. And they're almost like, you know, it's our opportunity to bear witness to what's happening in the world around us in a more serious way and in a way that's vital, you know, to our understanding of the world and for people to see themselves and their experiences reflected in the way that it's not in mainstream media often. Um, And with much more depth and nuance. And I think that's incredibly important. Um, And even if, you know, it doesn't get tens of millions of, you know, viewers and things like that, where a more mainstream, you know, offering might, I do think that those um, films almost become like part of our historical record, you know, Mm -hmm. um, uh, of, the world, you know, um, and people revisit them over and over again, you know, for generations. So I think that those films are incredibly important for those reasons. Um, But I also think that pop culture is really important. You know, it's how you start a conversation on a much bigger scale is how you can actually uh, change, I guess you could say hearts and minds, you know, Um, so much of what we, whether we recognize it or not, whether we like it or not, so much of the way we see the world is shaped through pop culture, you know, and it can be both uh, illuminating and effective, but also very dangerous. Um, And I think, um, I think one, one thing, you know, within the matchmaking that was both challenging and also really gratifying was the conversation that started. I think on one hand, overwhelmingly people were extremely um, happy to see themselves reflected in a global top 10 show you know that was about dating and love and relationships and all of that um you know the dating dating show space has been dominated by white people for a very long time you know um there's always been sort of token you know people of color and it's people of color felt very otherized you know in in those i think you know for the most part in those types of shows but here's a show of all brown people seeking all brown people you know um and it was, it, it felt, I think for a lot of people, it was really amazing to be able to see that. Um, and it also sparked some really necessary conversations within our community, you know, within between generations about what we value, you know, out of marriage and relationships and people and things like that. Um, you know, I, I know I was very, very prepared for there to be um, 
um, some uh, critique of the show as well in terms of the world that it represented. Um, and I actually think that that's really good. It's part of the conversation. It's part of how we're going to evolve out of outdated, you know, ideals and and uh, more problematic ideas. Um, but we have to we have to see it, warts and all, you know, in order to change it. That's what I believe. Um, and I think that there's, you know, if we had presented the world of Indian matchmaking um, as more progressive and inclusive than it actually is, we wouldn't have been doing anything. It wouldn't have felt authentic, first of all, you know, and it might not have done as well. And there have been, you know, other shows in a similar vein that have come out that have, this is not real life, you know? Right. Um, but well, I, also I was think wondering, we, uh, well, I was, no, thinking about the, I was thinking about um, why people feel so free to criticize this as opposed to a su suitable girl when they were very much the same kind of themes yeah. um, in it. And I was wondering if it's like, part of it is the idea that that reality series are a collaboration between the, the makers and the contributors and you're kind of working it all up together into an entertainment show and that um, therefore you are more uh, potentially on side with some of the views of the contributors in it in a way where observational verite filmmaking is you're observing it, but not necessarily promoting it. I'm not saying that's the case, but I'm just wondering if that's a perception or maybe that's one of the reasons other than just the fact that it was so much more high profile Indian matchmaking that you would get yeah. criticisms for one and not the other. I think it's a combination of both of those things. And um, I think it's also reflective of the tone of the series versus, versus The Suitable Girl. Um, I think there is a perception that with Indian matchmaking, we had all this control over our subjects. And, but it, it, I wouldn't say it was purely observational the way Indian, uh, a suitable girl was, you know, where we embedded for years and years, but we were still, we were not like, you know, casting for certain types or, you know, asking people to reflect certain views or trying to capture certain moments that would fit in narrative. The, our only criteria when we were casting the show were, was, are the people, you know, clients of Seema's or could they authentically be clients of Seema's since she, for the season one, at least was like the anchor of the show. And do they genuinely want to get married? Are they serious about this process? Or, you know, we immediately weeded out people who were just wanted to be on TV, you know, cause that mm -hmm. was not, um, that is not what we were going for. Um, and then there was, you know, about a third of the process that we kind of was predictable, you know, in terms of what we shot which was like the background package of each of the characters, their first meeting with Seema, the presentation of the bio data. It's like, that's a very systematic thing that was consistent across all characters. After that, the stories went where they went. And mm -hmm. if I had any control over where those stories went, I can guarantee you someone would have gotten married by the end of the series. You know, <laughs> right. Spoiler alert, nobody got married. Um, you know, and that was very stressful for us because we were like, shit, this is, is this gonna actually work? Um, but there wasn't, you know, people's lives, you know, went the way they went, you know, um, their relationships went the way they went. Um, they revealed what they wanted to reveal. They said what they wanted to say. And it was up to us to really present the most authentic version of that we, that we possibly could, you know? Um, and, you know, I think one thing on the whole, of course, you know, there's like, there's, there's, there's the reality of producing something in that style where there is a bit of coordination and, you know, like, you know, you do, you know, like there are little things like, hey, can you like hang out with your friends, you know, one day, like you do every Friday, but can you do it on the weekend that where they're filming and talk about your dates? You know, yeah, like things like that for sure. But in terms of actual content, the actual meat of the content, none of it was scripted, none of it was contrived. Um, 
you know, and I think that might be like a little bit of a misconception that people have, you know, in terms of what was reflected on the show. Um, you know, we could only share, we could, and, and it was a conscious decision to not sanitize it, to not cut out the three references to fair skin or cast, you know, because that would not be authentic to what came out of people's mouths or what their perspectives were. Um, and then I think tone is the other reason, you know, I think like when you have a show with a lighter tone, you have the opportunity, you know, to reach way more people. But then also I think sometimes people look at that as an endorsement of the world, you know, and that's a tricky line to walk, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, different people who have seen the show have taken different things from it. Some people very much, you know, understand that it's, um, you know, it's, uh, it's supposed to be an honest reflection of where we are as a society and then, you know, leave it to the audience to, to decide what needs to change. You know, others felt that we were endorsing, you know, a certain point of view. Um, you know, some people reacted to only watching the first episode or two, you know, and commented that there wasn't this type of diversity or that type of, you know, ideology represented what that came in further episodes. Um, um, but, you know, I think it's all fair game. You know, I think it's all fair game to talk about. And I'm glad we're talking about, um, mm -hmm. you know, all of these issues, you know, at least amongst people who who, who probably, a lot of people who watch the show and, and are conscious of these issues never really thought about it before, or at least never vocalized it before. Well, and it's been, you know, a bunch of my friends started watching it and talking about it when I was actually in a remote cottage up north. So I wasn't really able to watch it yet. And so it's interesting how, of course, all these populations you wouldn't imagine really take to it. Um, and 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 get get into the whole culture and interested in it in a way that they never never had done. There's a second series like in the pipeline. Um, I, hopefully, <laughs> um, okay. pandemic has definitely um, thrown a wrench in things. But you know, the show was you know very successful on Netflix and you know very beloved by the top people at Netflix. So uh, presumably, yeah. yes, we will have another season. Yeah. Well, I just want to wrap up by saying, um, I know that you headed from film school, you were thinking you were headed into fiction film, that you found your love of documentary. So um, is this where you will be staying with, within this larger world of documentary slash uh, unscripted? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wouldn't say exclusively, you know, I'm definitely going to continue working on scripted projects, but now the bar is so high for me in terms of what scripted projects I get involved with. Um, and that they really have to move me in the way that the documentaries and docu-series that I work on move me because um, it's the most thrilling, I think it's the most thrilling place to be. And I'm so happy that in some regard, the market has kind of met the enthusiasm, you know? Um, so, you know, there's the documentary industry, I guess you could say is like flourishing in a way that I think a lot of us, you know, have been working in documentary for a while, never thought imaginable. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of fertile ground here, you know? Um, um, but and, you know, we'll definitely still continue working on scripted projects, but it'll be very select and it would have to be, you know, as exciting to me as the documentaries that I work on are. Thank you so much. I think I, I need to let you get to your daughter who made an appearance, <laughs> but I really appreciate uh, you, you talking and, and joining us on Dockhouse Conversations. Of course, it was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dockhouse Conversations. Please join us next time when I'll be talking to Jose Padilla about his films, Bus 174 and Secrets of the Tribe, and the documentary that inspired him, When We Were Kings.